0: see you
1: there. Something big is going on here.
2: From hunting ghosts to Bigfoot. Paranormal, UFOs, true crime, and more.
1: We won't just be spouting articles. I was researching for your entertainment.
0: Beginning of a new world. <laughs>
2: the best guac you'll ever fucking eat. True story. It's basically like one day
0: you walk outside and you see that the ants are playing with matches. This, this is, a is the Black, Black Hat Cat Cat Report. Report. See you on the other side. Linda woke up to a blood-covered pillow, her hair stuck to the pillowcase, dried blood on her sheets, her bed, and the floor. It was coming from a cut on her head and out of her nose. It had been one week since she visited her niece, Lisa, at her job, and received an x-ray that would later reveal the existence of a small, spring-like metallic implant under the bridge of her nose. After hearing about the blood and seeing the x-ray, Bud would again put Linda under hypnosis and reveal the horrifying truth behind her bloody morning. What they had given her as a child, they had come back and taken in, in the night. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 44 of the Black Cat Report. My name is Gil and I'm joined with, on this incredible morning, by Joey recording early in the morning. Yep. <laughs> and Selena.
2: Hello. Good morning. If y'all don't... Good morning.
0: All right, y'all. Let's dive in. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of major reveals are about to happen today, most of which completely left out by other shows and documentaries telling this case. But as Selena and I have discovered as we've dived into all this research, it was Bud Hopkins' careful observation of subtleties and his ability to connect nuanced patterns that ultimately make the Brooklyn Bridge UFO abduction one of the most powerful arguments for the reality of alien abductions. To portray anything less than the full depth of his work is, frankly, to bastardize the credibility of the case, to simplify the pain of the victims, and ultimately, to empower the public to remain in the dark. With all that said, I wanna take a moment to do a recap of all that's happened leading up to today's episode. Linda was abducted around 3 a.m. November 30th, 1989 near the Brooklyn Bridge. Struggling to cope with the vague memories of that night, Linda reached out to world-renowned abduction researcher Bud Hopkins. Her hypnosis revealed an incredible wealth of horrifying and dramatic details Linda desperately wanted to deny. 15 months later, Bud received the first of many letters from Dan and Richard. In it, they claimed to be NYPD officers that echoed the details of Linda's experience. Soon after, Dan and Richard would visit Linda at her home, leaving a trail of early warning signs in their behavior, hints of a growing obsession with Linda and a struggle to comprehend the event they'd witnessed. From that point on, the aftermath of that night has led to Linda being kidnapped multiple times, The mental breakdown of dan the revealing of a third witness now known to be the head of the united nations and a pattern of letters and hypnosis revealing a deeper more disturbing understanding of what really happened on the morning of november 30th now let's dive in just days before the two-year anniversary of linda's abduction bud hopkins received a large manila envelope with a return address from upstate new york Inside, it contained a letter, along with copies of hand-drawn depictions of what the sender, Janet, had seen in the early morning hours of November 30th, 1989, as she was driving across the Brooklyn Bridge. After pairing this letter with further details given during an interview with Bud, this was her story. While heading home from a retirement party, Janet found herself halfway across the bridge when her car began to shut down. First, her headlights, then her dashboard, and eventually her engine. She would find herself slowly rolling to a stop. Before she even had time to process what had just happened, she realized that all of the lights, not only on the bridge, but on the streets and buildings ahead of her, were out but confusion quickly turned to panic when she saw the headlights of other cars coming towards her in a rear-view mirror. Scared she might be hit if she got out, she braced for impact and watched as each of the cars approaching behind her seemed as though they were all crossing some invisible line. One by one, they too shut off and began rolling until they slowly stopped. Soon, Janet along with the other drivers began getting out of their cars, trying to figure out just what was going on. It was then, as if on cue, this growing crowd of people suddenly realized that hovering above the road at the end of the bridge was a massive, glowing craft. The people started trying to rationalize what they were seeing, playing it down as some assholes filming a sci-fi movie, saying it must be something the film crew was doing that's causing everyone's cars to shut off. But the growing outrage would flip To panic and fear as four people tucked into the fetal position came floating out of the 10th floor window and then stopped perfectly framed in the pitch black neighborhood in the intense light shining down from above them then as if choreographed they quote expanded like blooming flowers and were now standing straight up hovering in midair below the craft after a short pause These four people shot straight up into the bottom of the ship, which began changing colors before darting directly over the horrified witnesses, their screams filling the air on the dark, cold bridge. No sooner did shock set in before lights came back on, leaving Janet with a better view of the panicked faces the experience had left with the crowd. Scared of how the people around her were reacting, Janet got back into her car, started it, left within days of her return home she'd learn an important lesson when the people closest to her met her story with ridicule even her grown children as soon as they realized she wasn't joking told her to stop thinking about it that it'll drive her crazy that she didn't see anything all the while laughing at her she'd eventually try again reaching out to her sister and brother-in-law who also didn't even hesitate to laugh in her face and treat her exactly the same way. The message was clear. If she wanted to go on with life the way it was, she needed to forget about that night, and so she did. Until one evening in May of 1991, when she happened to come across a TV show, Visitors from the Unknown. Something was triggered in her as she sat and watched the depictions of the UFOs and abductions. The event she had buried away as a secret began consuming her, filling her with self-doubt and no one to turn to. Eventually, this brought her to finding Bud Hopkins, who she honestly hoped would tell her that she was mistaken. But every detail in that letter and eventual meetings with Bud only further corroborated what Linda, Dan, Richard, and the third man had said they experienced.
2: That is insane.
1: Yeah. Now there's four people being taken, so very interesting. From
2: oh, I think it's it was the three aliens, three aliens and Linda.
1: He said three human beings, though. No,
2: uh, he was doing quotes. She called them people.
1: Uh Oh,
0: yeah. To clarify, um, when I said people, I was trying to keep it in the perspective of you know people halfway across the bridge seeing something happening at the end of the bridge she did go into detail about how they looked like they might have been kids um but they looked kind of like smaller than than kids and like linda's like very um i would say like petite right and so a lot of times the witnesses are kind of like it just looked like a young girl was coming out of the window but it was it was linda
2: she also mentioned that they looked sick the three three of the people looked sick because they had such large heads and such small bodies.
0: Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, it was it, the whole thing's nuts. There is another person which we didn't even cover at one point, uh, Erica, who also had it. There is a lot of crazy experiences tied up into this, like
2: and so many witnesses. It
0: does become, yeah, it does honestly become, you know, what you would expect. Uh, a ufo abducting somebody in manhattan (laughs) like uh Mm -hmm. to be like it would be a lot of people eventually like kind of coming out um i don't remember the full number but i believe it gets up into like the 20s or something like that of folks that actually like own up to it and Mm. you also have to think how many folks of the few folks that reported seeing something like this How many of them managed to know or get to Bud Hopkins, right? Honestly, like, you know, like there was—he wasn't like he was out putting up like flyers, being like, "You saw something in Brooklyn that night," you know, like. (laughs) So, yeah,
2: yeah, and the the funny uh, thing is like the way that a lot of people mention in their letters of like reaching out to him is his book Intruders that he wrote first. And like in almost yeah. every letter, it's like, I went to the local library and I started looking at books and I, st- I stumbled across your book, Intruders. And after reading a few paragraphs, I had to stop because I was so frightened. Um, But that's how I knew to reach out to you. It's so yeah, funny.
0: Which was funny, though, because they everybody reached out to his publisher. And his publisher literally never gives anybody his contact information. And it kind of seemed like it was annoying, Bud, to be honest. Like, this, this lady, she had to um, uh, find him in the phone book. Like, Mm -hmm. she Mm -hmm. saw that, like, he was supposed to be based in New York. She literally got a phone book and found Bud Hopkins. The letter that she sent actually had a small note attached saying that if you're the wrong Bud Hopkins, I apologize. And uh, (laughs) because it was about to be really awkward. Um, But it wasn't. Um, And that's actually the exact same thing that Dan and Richard had to do. Like, they also had to go to a phone book after trying to contact him through his publisher.
1: Yeah. So. I mean, it was really funny in the letter, too, that Janet said it was really weird to see those three little sickly creatures wearing I Love New York t shirts, <laughs> which was just very interesting, you know? That was, yeah. I mean, I think they were the ones that started it,
0: but. They were, yes. Yeah, but that, but that, everything we just spoke about is actually, um, at least with like folks reporting it or reporting it to Bud or whatever, that's kind of why I wanted to point that out about Janet about how things almost concluded with Janet it was so fast like it was within like the next two days that the people closest to her folks that that, you know never mocked her like that that respected her that she felt she could confide in she very quickly learned I'm going to lose all of this if I keep pushing this subject if I keep talking about it and i think that's a good microcosm right of um what takes place at all of the different witnesses homes not just in this case but in many others where folks come back and they try to tell their wife you know they try to tell their husband their partner their their closest friend and immediately are like oh shit! if i can't even tell this to you like if i can't even say i think i thought i saw something to you um I need to be really careful about telling anybody else. Mm-hmm. And so they, they bury it. You know, people bury uh, traumatic episodes. And as is often the case um, with any traumatic episode, there can be triggers that years and years and years later come up that bring it back and it starts to consume them. They start to think about it and it becomes, mm-hmm. you know, an obsession. Well, within days of Bud starting to look into Janet's story. In late November of 1991, Linda would have her much-anticipated run-in with Richard. While making her way to the post office early one morning, Linda felt someone suddenly take her hand. Turning to look, she saw it was Richard, wearing a huge smile on his face as he asked if they could talk. After making the demand that in no way would she get into his car or let him pick the spot, she agreed, and they would take a cab to St. Patrick's Cathedral later saying, quote, if he had anything in his mind that wasn't Christian, he had changed his mind after being in the church for a while.
2: (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's so funny. She's like, big brain. (laughs) Big
0: brain, got got Mm -hmm. on my side. Well, after enough time would eventually pass that Linda felt okay for them to leave the church without putting herself at risk of being kidnapped, they started to walk around town. Linda breaking the awkward silence with small talk after repeatedly putting Richard's subtle advancements down. A few rounds of this later, while trying to recover the vibe after one of Richard's failed attempts to turn the mood, Linda would ask, what are some of the things you like to do? Do you you still like to collect baseball cards? Richard was taken back and confused a little by this question, but admitted that, Yes, it used to be one of his childhood hobbies. He then turned the question around and insisted, quote, You collect them too, don't you? Linda, now feeling like she made him feel, owned up to loving them and regularly taking her two boys to card shows. Never one to take a hint, Richard followed up with, quote, Linda, Your interest in me doesn't go beyond what I saw in November 1989. My interest in you does. She tried to let him down softly again, but the conversation started to get even more weird. Richard began telling her a story about how he believed he was the father of a son. When asked if he ever sees him, he replied that he just has seen him from time to time. Confused by Richard's phrasing, Linda asked if he was sure the boy was actually his son. 95% sure. Then saying, I quote, wanted to marry the boy's mother, but she didn't know me. She didn't even know I existed.
2: I was just like, when he said, I was like, how is that your son? Unless you did something you're not supposed to do.
0: But even Mm -hmm. then, the way he was, the way he was wording it was, like, he was trying to get around making these very vague mm,
1: kind of, really like, statements
0: vague. without, I mean, at first it, like, it caught me at least. I, like at these... first, and then I was, like, that, like that, that phrasing could also be used for non-consensual, like, mm-hmm. you know, like, sex, but, like, looking back and, like, rewriting or, you know, writing us over and over a few times, I realized, like, I think he was trying to be, like, not implying that but also like kind of towing that line of like well when the hell else does this situation occur Mm -hmm. you know this went on and on talking about how he would loved the woman for years even though she didn't know he existed and about the fact that this magical woman was already married to another man turning the conversation towards linda's son johnny richard wanted to know about how he was doing in school his interest, how he was getting along about his friends, all similar questions to what he'd asked on the car ride home after rescuing her from Dan. He started slowly connecting his vague struggles with obvious similarities to Johnny until Linda, finally reaching a breaking point, started calling him out for trying to claim to be her son, Johnny's father. Though offended, Linda couldn't help but feel pulled towards Richard. There was an excitement with Richard she shamefully enjoyed, which made denying Richard when he asked for a kiss honestly a little bit more bearable. After breaking yet another awkward silence, the conversation turned to their own childhood, specifically if they'd ever had any imaginary friends. Linda touched on the fact that she had an older sister, Richard, he was an only child, but while growing up, he wanted a sibling so bad that he had an imaginary friend. She was, quote, like a little sister. I always wanted a little sister. He then asked Linda, you ever have an imaginary friend? She did. And while she couldn't remember his name, quote, I made him older than me. You know, a big brother. Believe it or not, I, I miss him. Behind the small talk, Linda was in turmoil Stuck between a growing attraction to Richard and a dedication to her marriage. But this finally reached a climax when Richard said, If I should die before you, there's something I want to take with me. Before grabbing her and giving her a passionate kiss. She couldn't help but melt into it. Conflicted but infatuated, she sank into the moment before Richard pulled back, looking her in the eyes and then giving her a soft hug. She asked why he did it, why he kissed her, before they both started crying. He responded, thank you, Linda, that he would keep it with him always, that now they have something of each other, and then apologized. I know you're feeling disloyal, and I'm sorry, but it was just a kiss. I know you're feeling like I made you do something wrong. When the moment finally calmed down, they agreed that they should probably just go their separate ways. Richard leaned in for another hug. Linda warned him not to kiss her. He was respectful. Then, before finally leaving, he handed Linda a little box and told her that it was a gift she should take to Bud Hopkins for having been so supportive of him, Dan, and the third man. She would give this to him a few days later, the box contained a gold friendship ring with his name on it. It said Bud, engraved beneath a row of four small diamonds. And etched on the inside of the ring was the name Richard, with two dates, 11:30:89 89 and 11:30:91, 91 marking the two-year anniversary between the date of Linda's abduction and the witness of it by Dan, Richard, and the third man to the present and all that's come in between. Just a few days after Richard and Linda's meeting in the park, Bud would receive a letter from Richard in the mail.
2: Dear Mr. Hopkins, the meeting yesterday between Linda and I went very well. She was very relaxed and comfortable. I gave Linda the choice of where we should spend our day She preferred to stay on Manhattan Island. We went sightseeing and saw St. Patrick's Cathedral, Rockefeller Center, and then we walked through Central Park. I wanted to hug and kiss her, but knowing Linda, she would have run away. Linda is a very interesting person. There's no wondering why, considering what she might be. Yes, Bud, I believe that Linda is from another place, but raised here. I know she doesn't agree and becomes angry when this opinion is expressed. There is nothing more we need to know about her. We're convinced that she isn't working for anyone. However, if we possessed her talent of protecting ourselves, it would make our work a lot easier. It would stop the perpetrator in his tracks. At the same time, no one would get hurt in the process. What better way to protect our world leaders and each other? Only Linda knows what she possesses, but she refuses to admit it by saying she doesn't remember. At any rate, I won't say a word to anyone. The third party decided it was best not to attend our little meeting. He had many other commitments to tend to. He is an unhealthy man who needs to slow down. Naturally, he refuses to admit this and continues to race around anyway. However difficult this is for him, his interests regarding world peace, art, and French cuisine remain intact. Ironically, his interest in the physical condition of the earth has heightened to a great level. He will most likely spend the last years of his life dedicated to this cause. The November 1989 incident has taken its toll on him. We are worried about his health. As for Dan, he has suffered another setback at the tail end of our trip. Shortly after we returned to the States, we checked him into a hospital for observation. It was concluded that Dan be placed into a rest home for a while, at least until he can get his head on straight. He checked himself into one of the best rest homes in the country. He will remain there under treatment for an indefinite period of time. Dan has had problems long before this incident occurred. The incident itself brought him to the breaking point. As for the others involved, those in the other cars, I'll assume that they haven't discussed it since the incident happened. As for me, I'm still hanging on, but by a hair. But there's a need for me to tell you something that no one knows except for myself. I have to share this with you. Because if I don't, Dan will have my company at the rest home, where he is now staying. However personal and embarrassed I am about this, I have to get it off my chest. You are the only person I know of where there will be a possibility that you may understand. For the life of me, I don't understand and maybe it's better that I don't. In fact, I find this particular situation harder to accept than the November 1989 incident itself. Please don't think that I too have gone over the edge. If I have, then I must have been crazy for most of my life. (sighs) Throughout the years of my life, from age of 10 to the age of 25, I've been dreaming of a girl from time to time. I never knew who she was or where she came from. She seemed to be a figment of my imagination. As strange as it seems, we grew up together in my dreams. The older I became, the more I dreamt of her. As far as I can remember, my first dream occurred when I was 10 years old. In the dream, I didn't know where I was, but it was a very bright white environment. I spent most of my time shading my eyes from the bright sunlight. Two tall, fair, emotionless male adults walked towards me, holding the hand of a tiny little girl. I thought she was about three or four years old. She wore her hair in short, curled pigtails, jeans, and a baseball cap placed the wrong way on her head. She smiled at me and asked if I wanted to play. I said no because she was so much smaller than me. The two strange adults left her with me anyway, which gave me the feeling I was babysitting. We began to talk and I learned that she was seven years old. We told each other our names, but for some strange reason, we couldn't remember from minute to minute. So I named her baby Anne and she named me Mickey. We wandered around for a while with nothing to do. We became acquainted and found each other to be full of fun. The next thing I knew, these two two strange adults came along and led baby Ann away by the hand i was left standing there with my hands in my pockets i woke up that morning remembering this dream and shortly forgot all about it as we all do most of the time afterwards about six months later i dreamt of baby Ann again this second dream triggered the memory of the first dream This time we were at the same bright white location as we were the first time. The same strange adults walked her over to me and made me play with her. I didn't mind because I liked baby Anne. We played games like cops and robbers, etc. and we talked for a little while. She asked me why I named her Anne, and I told her that the name reminded me of the color yellow and it almost matched the color of her hair. She just looked like an Anne. I remember removing her baseball cap and putting it on the right way, but she kept changing it back to the wrong way. Shortly, these two emotionless people came by and took her away once again. Baby Ann waved goodbye and walked away with them. When I woke up that morning in my bed, it took a little longer for me to forget. I wondered why I was dreaming of the same tiny little girl for the second time. I had never seen her before the last two dreams, but before I knew it, Each night I went to sleep, secretly hoping I would dream of her again. Two and a half years passed before another dream came. I was 13 and she was 10 and taller. She still wore her cap the wrong way, and her curled pigtails were longer. I remember how she let go of the hands of those strange adults and came running to me when she saw me this time. We were very happy to see each other again and tried to memorize each other's addresses. But just like our names, three years passed, we kept forgetting from minute to minute. We wondered why and how we were going to continue this friendship outside of these dreams. This time we talked more and played less. We wanted to know everything about each other. We asked each other so many questions. We were anxious to know about each other's interests. There was so much to learn about each other. When those strangers came by to take her away, it became more difficult to say goodbye. I remember when she pulled herself away from their grip and asked if she could stay longer. They said no and took her away. I literally waited three years to dream of her again. Three years is a long time for a kid to wait for something. The years dragged on, but it was worth the wait because the bonding began. I was 16 and she was 13. Baby Ann was growing into a lovely young woman. She lost her baseball cap and wore her hair loose. I noticed there was a change in her body, and I liked it. We sat on a bright white sandy beach facing each other. I gave her what she called her very first kiss. Our relationship changed. We constantly held hands, and from time to time, I'd steal a kiss or two. When it was time for her to leave, it hurt us more, and I was getting tired of being left flat with my hands in my pockets. I protested, but these two fair men didn't give a damn, and took her away just the same. The older I became, the more I dreamt of baby Anne. It was fine with me, but it was taking its toll on my real social life. It didn't matter who I dated, they just couldn't measure up to baby Anne. I was old enough to know that I couldn't let this figment of my imagination take over my life. I wasn't handling it very well. What was I to do? By now, I was seeing baby Anne on a steady basis. About once every six months, the bonding became stronger and stronger. She became more and more beautiful. I couldn't help myself. What does a boy do from age 16 to 19 do? These dreams wouldn't stop. If they did, it would have broken my heart. I've lost control. By the time I was 25, I was totally beside myself with love. I wanted to get married, and so did baby Anne. But how? You can't marry a figment of your imagination. What were we going to do? Stay in our dreams? Never to return to our bedrooms again? How? I'll tell you, bud, I had a problem. These dreams were torturing me. I wanted them to stop no matter how painful it might have been. I tried therapy and the local priest, too. Nothing helped. The dreams continued. In the year 1969, when I was 25 and baby Ann was 22, The bond was completed. We were going to spend the rest of our lives together, no matter what we had to do. I don't think there was ever a greater love than ours. Until those miserable, creepy bastards came along and attempted to take baby Anne away from me. We tried to explain our problem. We told them that we never wanted to be apart, but they didn't care. They took her away from me. I tried to stop them, but they were much stronger than I. She cried so much that she lost her breath and struggled all the way. I chased them, but it was too late. They were gone. This meant that we wouldn't see each other again for another six months. I knew we would try again to stay together at that time, so I was left angry and hurt with my hands in my pockets. Consequently, those reoccurring dreams vanished, and I never saw her again. Life seemed very sad. The torture I felt went away, but the emptiness took its place. Twenty years later, November 30th, 1989, I had a UFO sighting, sitting in a car on Catherine Slip and South Streets. The object o- hovered over an apartment building about two blocks up. A beam of whitish-blue light flashed on it from beneath it, so I saw the figure of three strange creatures and a figure of a little girl surrounded by light just after they came out of a window below. I had to be sure of what I was seeing, it was so very bizarre, so I went into the glove compartment to get a pair of binoculars. There I saw my baby Anne, hanging in the light like a Christmas tree ball. That circle of glass with the image of her face on it haunted me for months. I was terrified and confused. I couldn't take it anymore. I had to find her dead or alive. I found her all right. Linda is my baby Anne. She's real and not a figment of my imagination. I came away very angry that night after I left her apartment. How could those two bastards in my dreams be so cruel as to let me go on in my life without her? It wasn't fair. But I love her so, but it's too late. So once again, I'm left here with my hands in my pockets. I've hinted to Linda about our bonding, as those bastards named it, but she doesn't recall. I don't want to interfere with her life any more than I already have. She has a life of her own and shares it with her family. That could have been mine. But I don't think she should know about this if she hasn't remembered on her own. In any case, if she does recall sometime in the future, please tell her that it wasn't all in her mind. Please tell her I love her, and I've missed her very much over these years. I've been lucky enough to find out that I've been in love with a real woman instead of a dream over the period of a lifetime. This has made all the heartache worthwhile. I don't understand what has happened throughout my life. Was I dreaming or not? I don't know, and I'm glad I don't know. In the meantime, this whole situation with the November 1989 incident and my problem with Linda has me standing between the fire and the water. If I go in either direction, I'll burn or I'll drown. I shouldn't be in her life anymore. It isn't fair to her family, nor should she be in mine because it isn't fair to me. It's painful, too painful and risky. But I put in for a transfer. It should be coming in at any time. As for you, kind sir, I know it hasn't been easy for you. You've been a good friend, and I'll treasure your friendship for the rest of my life. Whether you know it or not, you're holding my heart in your hands. Good luck in your investigations. You're the very best in the world, and don't let anyone tell you different. Remember, a leader of all nations holds you in the highest esteem. Goodbye, bud, and may God bless. Respectfully yours, Richard.
1: Whoa, that just tr- bombed yeah. there. Now that he it's... is in love with this lady that he said he met when she was like seven. I... Also very creepy that he keeps yeah, her Yeah, but
2: I, and... I wanted to mention something yeah. that I think we didn't mention. She told Bud that kissing Richard was like having her first kiss all over again but she couldn't remember who it had been. Yeah.
0: Her first kiss. Yeah. Mm. And she kissed yeah. Richard and wow. Richard
2: claims that they used to kiss. And yeah.
0: There's a yeah. There's about to be like yeah, that that was a very important note, but like there's there's about to be a lot of those connections coming up here. Um yeah, a lot of things are going to tie together and there there is an overall Uh, significance to what this aspect of the case actually brings
1: to, I guess, ufology as a whole. These aliens Um, are playing like alien matchmaker slash alien grooming. They're playing Sims. Which is kind of (laughs) creepy. They're legit (laughs) just playing Sims. They're like,
2: what happens if I put you in a swimming Mm -hmm. pool and take out the ladder?
0: Yep, pretty much. Needing to confirm the claims made in Richard's letter. Bud wanted to be incredibly careful not to clue Linda in as to what it actually said. This would eventually lead to Linda in for yet another round of hypnosis. But this time, before the session, Bud would spend a considerable amount of time asking questions and carefully picking apart every detail of what Richard and Linda spoke about on the morning they spent together. He needed to know for sure if anything he may have said would influence her, her hypnosis to do this bud would keep encouraging her to dig further into their conversations while carefully avoiding questions that might lead her to topics he was listening for this process would eventually bring linda to their conversation about imaginary friends quote he asked me um, maybe this will help you if if i had any imaginary friends when i was a kid i said well yes i did but He only came out at night. After exploring this further, she'd go on to tell Bud that she used to have dreams about playing with her imaginary friend, that they'd play cops and robbers. When asked where they used to play, she replied, A sunny place. A very, very sunny place. But as questions continued and the memory of this sunny place came back to her, she started to realize how weird it was. It was completely empty. The ground always felt like it was slightly slanted or steep. Well, not necessarily too steep, but it always felt like it was on a slant. No matter how hard she tried, she couldn't see if there was any horizon. It just seemed like an endless expanse. The more Bud asked about the sunny place, the more she'd come to realize just how much she had actually ignored as a child. This whole time, she'd been just assuming that it was outside because of how bright it was, but now that she was actually focusing on it, she realized it was massive, completely white, and completely empty. And while her answers would basically become points of confirmation, it was actually what she couldn't remember that would become the outline for the questions Bud would focus on when he put her under hypnosis. In all, The conversation would last for hours, but these are some of the key moments. When asked, did you have a name for your imaginary friend, Linda replied, I named him Mickey. Tell me more about these two adults. Describe them. They were very tall, blonde, pale, and wearing skin-tight blue suits. Where would these dreams start? They would always start with me coming down a sort of ramp into the larger, white room. What would you see? A small black speck in the distance. I would walk with the two adults, and when we'd get there, I'd see my friend Mickey. Were there other kids? No, just us, just Mickey. He was older than me, tall, had blue eyes, strawberry blonde hair, and was very cute. But then carefully asks Linda if maybe, as she was starting to grow older, if her fantasies started to change, that maybe they would start to include sex. No, no. Maybe there were, but I don't remember them. He's cute, though. I made him very cute. He had a button nose. He was He was adorable. You don't think I'd pick a brother or imaginary friend and he'd be really ugly. He was really cute. Johnny looks a lot like him. Who? My Johnny. When I think about it, yeah, button nose, blue eyes. Yikes. Whoa.
1: There it is.
2: (laughs) There it is.
1: There is,
0: yeah, and I'm, there's like eight, Pages, maybe about like yeah, like eight, somewhere between eight to fifteen pages of Linda going back and forth with Bud because he's he's very intentionally not being direct. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to lead her on, and she's kind of he's kind of slowly bringing her into the area and just kind of let, asking her what she sees mm-hmm. more or less. And he brings up the fact that um, like he he has her go back to like have you know basically you've seen Wait, uh, yeah he goes back to the fact he's like well you've seen richard but what does he look like she goes in and explains it and then she's like have you ever seen or somehow they get to the point of like richard as a kid and she yeah what do you think he would look like as a kid Oh, you're right you're right and like she's like well when i was at the the house when she had been kidnapped by dan she saw a childhood photo of Richard. It was in black and white, yada yada yada. But basically in that photo, Richard and Johnny look identical.
2: She also she says, Oh my gosh, if you know Johnny were thinner, that would look just like him. But then she also had said um at some point during being asked questions, she was like, Oh, that's so strange. Like, that looks a lot like him, and then Butt's like, What? Then she's like, the picture um, at Richard's house that looks like Mickey.
0: So from here, Bud asked Linda about Johnny. Then would have her compare her answer to the same questions about Mickey and vice versa. Like I said, it's a lot of long conversation. And over and over again, every question Bud asked Linda about similarities between Mickey and her son Johnny kept pushing the likelihood of Richard's letter being the truth. After this, Linda and Bud went downstairs to the room where they had all of the previous hypnosis sessions, and once they settled in, Bud told her that he wanted her to see herself as a little girl, 10 or 11 years old. but then attempts to place Linda in the exact, same environment she had just relayed to him when she was remembering meeting with Mickey. I want you to use, I want you to see yourself standing on a ramp of some sort. There's a, a man on either side of you. The men you've been describing to me, very tall, blonde. You're in a very brightly lit place, very sunny. He then had her explain the area around her, what it looked like, uh, were there any trees or grass, any, anything, any horizon. It has a dome, round dome on top of it, darker white than the sky. But then asks Linda to try to go back, back to b- before they got into that room. He asked her what she saw leading up to the room, and after a little bit of struggle, she finally comes to hallways. Narrow hallways. There are doors, funny doors with rounded tops. I can't see any doorknobs, but I can see that there are doorways. as Bud was having Linda slowly retrace her steps, pushing her to dive deeper and deeper into her memories from the white room. She walked back up the ramp and then down the narrow hallways, but at this point, something happened. She suddenly jumped to being about seven years old. She started talking about being so excited because her and her whole family were going to a place called Raven Hall, a local swimming pool in Brooklyn, Coney Island. She couldn't stop thinking about how all of her friends were going to be there, that the the whole neighborhood was planning to go. Next, she was untying her shoes in one of the women's changing rooms and noticed the door starting to open. She screams for her mom, asking her to basically tell her sister to stop messing with her. But her sister yells back from outside, "'I'm not anywhere near your room,' and we're all next to one another." Linda then watched as the door continued to slowly open, little by little, and started yelling for her mom. But no one answered. With the door now almost entirely open, she walked up to the doorway and looked out. But there was no one around. She stepped out of the changing room and looked behind the door. Her eyes fixed on a tall, strange-looking man she didn't recognize. Then realized there was another, almost identical man, standing behind him. Both in skin-tight blue In unison, they said. It's time to go. Mm. Linda snapped back with, You better go away before I go and get my dad and my Uncle Mike and my Uncle Dominic and my Uncle Salvatore. Everybody's here. No, it's time to go. Go where? It's time to go. Her next memory is being led out of the changing room. The two men hold her by the hand as they near the pool, heading towards the road. There were people around, but no one looked at them. No one looked at her. No one was moving. Nothing was moving even the water from the kids splashing which stood suspended in the air as they continue walking she sees a ufo hovering above them the same as she'll see later in her life they lift off the ground and into the ship
1: i'm uh, i'm abducted into this story honestly the uh <laughs> yeah the, this is nuts
2: it's just like the implications of like her seeing everybody being frozen in place like that brings a whole new thing to the table that like aliens are able to manipulate like time or like you know people like that like they can just mm-hmm. like stop time so that they can kidnap someone
1: yeah and nobody knows the difference mm-hmm I, I think it's crazy though that, yeah. that if this is happening then like what t- 20 years 20 years before this was is about 20 years I guess she was she's what 27 37 now at the time of the 80s time of the second abduction or fifth or whatever yeah she's, I don't know. she's I can't older. Math, yeah um but yeah that yeah. they didn't just do the same thing and just stop time and then abduct her because it's like they Either that or it was supposed to be like a public thing. And they were just like, please, everyone see this instead of it just being her.
2: Yeah. um, There you go. So Bud has this theory, especially because that um, like leader from the UN was like one of the witnesses. And they did like their whole environmentalist message of like, look at this dead fish. Look what you've done. Mm -hmm. And Bud is like, seems kind of like a stunt. To, like, f- mm-hmm. shadow what they're doing as, like, them being, like, interested in us and our survival and, like, the p- survival of the planet when in reality mm-hmm. they are doing all of these other types of things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And there's, I, I think, too, um... There's also the fact that, like, a lot of times... um while it might just look like a UFO's there, and then it darts mm-hmm. off, right? Um, in terms of perception or like what the folks are experiencing, it might be a half an hour ordeal. You know, like most of these cases, um, even with Linda, she wakes up. They're around the bed. They're just chilling. They're just standing there, right? Um, and it's this this long process before they actually go outside, and they're up there, and they go up into the ship. Mm -hmm. But what witnesses see is just the craft appearing and within a second, everybody's outside of it. They go into it and the ship takes off. Right? So, in terms of how it actually breaks down with, with time, people see it for three seconds but it feels like a half an hour to the folks experiencing it. And if it's you know, just a couple seconds, then it's just something happening in the corner of your eye.
1: Yeah, so I want to speak to this because I uh, just wanted to correct, make sure I was on the right path, but if maybe that they're using some kind of gravity thing to slow time because gravity affects time and controls the speed of time, farther away from gravity, the slower the time goes. So maybe that they were... Yeah. Uh, keeping gravity away in some sort so that it slowed time t- enough to stop it.
2: Hmm.
1: I don't know. Maybe that's what they're working through.
2: Interesting.
1: Maybe their suits just help them run super fast. <laughs> Theory of relativity. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: <clears throat> well, once inside, Linda recalled seeing more adults, all of them looking similar to the two men who had taken her, with the exception of one, A feminine-looking version, which she comments on for quite a while in the book, saying she's buff, too buff, and quote, she must be Mm. a (laughs) bodybuilder. She then gave us way too much information about her views and um, how women should tone their body. (laughs) It got excessive. But from here, they continued walking, leading her down the ship's hallways and taking her directly into one of the funniest scenes i've ever read in an abduction case her next memory is of a door sliding open and revealing a large dark room with a single bright light shining down directly in the center they stepped inside leading her through the dark towards the beam of light as they got closer She saw in the center of the light there was a large table emerging from the floor with smaller cubes surrounding it. And when they reached the light, they all just kind of took a seat on the smaller cubes and just sat around for a while. That was it. They all, like, literally, they all just, like, sat down Mm -hmm. around this table. (laughs) Like, in the book, it leads up as, like, oh, shit you know like she's about to get put on the table after being abducted by aliens we all know what happens at that point nope they all just took a seat
1: just chilled mm-hmm. that was these it. Are the trolls <laughs> of, there for... these are the trolls <laughs> of alien lore they're just like sitting there kind of like side-eyeing her every once in a while cuz she's just like am i gonna get put on this table and they're just like <laughs> side-eyeing her i like to think I like to think that they just got a hold of, like,
0: one of those, like, super shitty, like, parenting books. And they saw that around her age, it's normal to, like, you know, put a kid in timeout. And they just, you know, understood that as, like, well, this is part of their reproductive process. Mm. So <laughs>
1: we must put her in timeout. And they're just kind of, like, I don't get it. Mm. I don't understand humans. That That and they're just, like, waiting for her to compliment the table. And it's like we just built this table <laughs> together, like, and they're all just like waiting for it, looking at her, like, and she's just like, "mm-hmm," like, mm-hmm. like just like kind of looking around, and they're just like, "Why haven't? Why hasn't she commented on her table yet?" <laughs> we just had it installed, <laughs> and they were, like, "Oh shit!
0: I forgot. Humans can't see the same light spectrum. Mm-hmm. She didn't know we were watching TV for the past three yes, hours." Yes, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> well. After they all just kind of sat around and did whatever the hell that was, they took her to another room. But this one was incredibly bright, with absolutely nothing inside of it. And as they let her inside, she noticed that the floor was slanted, almost like a ramp. It was white and hard to distinguish from the walls and what must have been the ceiling. Although there was some slight differences, it was minimal as they walked she noticed they were taking her towards a small black speck turns out it was a boy once they got there and after complaining that she didn't know him to the adults she asked the boy if he wanted to play he said no (laughs) and then (laughs) they just proceeded to stare at each other awkwardly as the two aliens walked away After a long silence, the boy asked Linda why she was wearing her hat wrong. She got defensive, and he called her a baby. Standard kid stuff, really. Anyways, with literally nothing else to do but walk, sheer boredom soon won over the petty silence, and they started talking. This next part is a direct quote. Next, he said, Well, what's your name? My name's Linda, and what's your name? And he told me, and I forgot. And so he said, What's your name? And I said, My name's Linda, and what's your name? And he told me, And we were going back and forth like that. Yeah, well, What's your name? And I said, Linda. And it was going on and on. And then, He would tell me his name? I don't remember." End quote. Well, they were fully aware at this point that they couldn't remember each other's names the moment they heard them. So they eventually gave each other nicknames. Mickey and Baby Ann. From that moment on, they were friends, chatting about school, hobbies, and finally sports realizing they both loved collecting baseball cards. Well, as they chatted, it also became obvious that it wasn't just each other's names they couldn't remember, but also things like the name of the school they went to, their neighborhood, places they liked to go. In hindsight, anything that would ID one another.
2: Dun, dun, dun.
0: Eventually, it's like a very
2: trippy part of the yeah, book to me, like, honestly but um that's, that's so scary like they can affect your well obviously they can affect your memory because people often have like flashbacks and like repressed memories but it's just mm-hmm. wild it's stored somewhere like,
1: back there but like they're
2: <clears throat> they're like censoring them i imagine like yeah. they're like what's your name yeah. boop. what's your name boop boop
1: <laughs> Oh, Boop, that's a good name.
2: (laughs) Baby boop.
0: Boop. Well, eventually, the two men in blue came back and told Linda it was time to go. She said goodbye, waved to Mickey, and was taken back into the same room. The one with the large square table block thingy and all those small square blocks around them for seats. After that, Her next conscious memory was sitting outside of the dressing room, confused and wondering how she got there. She was sitting there trying to remember until eventually she was snapped out of it by somebody trying to open the door, which made her realize that, oh yeah, that's why I'm here. That's what I was doing. After changing, she went outside where her mom began complaining about her taking so long to get ready. She found her friends, and until the day she went through this session, always just remembered having a nice day. She estimated that her time with Mickey and Richard was about 45 minutes at most. Damn. After bringing Linda out of hypnosis, Bud was trying to cope with the weight of what was just confirmed. If this really means Richard's letter is true, then he along with everyone else studying alien abductions, have been overlooking a major aspect of the phenomenon for decades. He realized that for years now, abductees had been telling him that sometimes when they'd meet each other, they would feel an intense familiarity. No matter what they did, they couldn't shake it. He admitted he would often pass this off as them just experiencing deja vu or mistaken identity or at the very most consider they may have seen each other both being abducted at the same time. But now he's looking at years of research pointing to extraterrestrials doing something far larger and far more systemic. Something that takes place over a lifetime and starts in childhood. Well, the same setup as when he read the Lady of the Sands letter. A camera recording and witnesses in the room, but began reading Richard's, well, Mickey's, and baby Anne letter to Linda, waiting until they were filming to tell her it was a letter from Richard. When he finally gets to the part of the letter where Richard mentions that from the age of 10 to the age of 25, he had been dreaming of a girl he didn't know. Linda had a puzzled look on her face and started to become visibly tense. This tension changed to complete shock when in the letter, his next mention was a bright white environment, two tall, Fair, motionless men walking towards him, holding the hand of a tiny girl. Now she had the appearance of silently pleading. Then Bud gets to the part of the letter where Richard uses the names, Baby Ann, and Mickey, and her face turned to a horrified grimace. Quietly saying, "Oh, Bud, that's that's um, that's weird. That's." That's weird before tears began forming in her eyes. But softly asked Linda, Do you wanna hear more of this? Shaking, she reaches over and grabs a glass of water, and lifts it to the mouth, and is barely able to take a sip. She puts it down, she says, What what's he saying? What's he saying? in an almost helpless way, and at this point Bud puts the letter away and is freaked out. How does he know? How does he know? But gives her a comforting hug and realizes how unbelievably like stiff she feels with just tension and anxiety. She's in complete shock and just keeps repeating, That's too weird. It's too weird. I don't understand this whole she starts asking the other people around her in the room, witnesses, the camera guy, everybody. Would you explain this to me? But refers to this process of denial as confirmation anxiety. She just keeps asking everybody to explain it to her. She can't believe it. But finally softly confirms and reassures her. It was Richard. Mickey was Richard and you were baby Anne. It took over an hour of going back and forth like this, Linda in complete shock before she finally allowed herself to accept the fact that Mickey was Richard. The witness in the room, besides the cameraman, was Gibbs Williams, a clinical psychotherapist. He was able to give Linda some helpful suggestions in dealing with the profound confusion and anxiety she was feeling. Despite this, Bud realized that it would take a long, long time before Linda would be able to accept it. At the time of Bud writing this book, he notes, three years after they had this therapy session, Linda is still deeply conflicted about the place Richard or Mickey holds in her heart. This was a new confirmation, a new confirmation of a theory Bud didn't even know could exist. Bud came out of this pretty much convinced there might be a systemic alien reproduction program, the implications of which are obviously entire foreign, entirely alien to us. We can only speculate, but the fact of the matter is this case, and Bud's status of where he was at in the alien abduction phenomenon world is... This is the moment that made that entire genre within the UFO community a thing. It's never heard of, never recognized, and ignored for a long time. People have been going back now and finding connections like these from cases that were never reported at the time like that. And on part five, Dan's on the run.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Black Cat Report in our episode on the Brooklyn Bridge UFO Incident Part 4. The turns just keep coming. I mean, Richard and Linda, who saw that coming? You can always find us on Instagram and get the newest and most up-to-date information on everything Black Cat Report. Also, follow like and comment wherever you get your podcasts we'll see you next week for maybe the conclusion of the series